Hello, how are you doing? Hope you're good. It's Guy here uh, with another episode of Creative Forces. Three years after the last one, uh, I took a bit of a break uh, after recording that first uh, batch of 40 episodes, which I love doing. Um, I took a bit of a break almost exactly three years ago now uh, for various reasons, one being the birth of child number two, which obviously took up a lot of my time, but also because I was really in the early stages of uh, creating my podcast production company, Dapdip, which three years on is now doing great. We've got The Price of Football is our big original show, um, which you should check out if you like football or finance or even if you just like, you know, listening to two blokes having a funny chat. Um, but also I've been doing a lot of work helping companies and individuals with their podcasts, which I'm really enjoying. Uh, but I wanted to give myself the time to really focus on that. But now those everything seems to be in place for that at the moment, which is, feels good. I was really keen to get back on to Creative Forces and speak to some more creative people about how they do what they do and how they've made the decisions they've made and how they've got to where they've got to. It's it's a subject that really fascinates me and I love speaking to these people because it, it really inspires me um, in my creative work and I hope it inspires you too. Uh, so we're back uh, with a, some more episodes of Creative Forces, just doing a short run uh, now with this uh, return, uh, but then I'm hoping over the next couple of years I'm going to do a whole load more episodes, um, which I, as I say, first and foremost, I love doing. gives me a chance to meet people who inspire me, um, and I hope you enjoy listening to them too. In this episode, I'm speaking to Adam Gibbons, uh, a musician, producer, who I've loved for a long time. He's a brilliant uh, funk and soul uh, music maker, essentially. He's someone I've been aware of for a long time, um, as someone who loves the music in that scene. Um, and I'm just always amazed by the quality of his output, right from his first album, Press On, uh, all the way through to his latest work now. You know, the, the quality that he's been able to maintain has been amazing, and he's, you know, he's a real sort of leading light in that scene. Um, and yeah, I was thrilled to speak to him. He's someone I've admired for a long time. Um, and I was just fascinated to find out exactly how he works because he's a really interesting case in the music business, I think, because, you know, he's essentially, he does everything. You know, he collaborates with other artists, but the vast majority of his work is produced by him. So he's a producer, he's a, he plays most of the instruments, he writes the songs, you know, and then he, he's also... Very early on in his career, he starts to take control of the publication side too. So he has his own label. He puts the music out himself. Uh, and he's been, you know, a real leading, as I say, a real leading light in this genre of music. And yeah, he's an inspiration to me. So I was really delighted to speak to him um, from his studio. And yeah, we, uh, we had a really nice chat. I was fascinated to hear his journey, how he's got to where he's got to, the decisions he's made along the way. I love talking to him. I hope you enjoy listening to it. This is me talking to Adam Gibbons, a.k.a. Lack of Afro. So, Adam, thank you. Welcome. Thanks for joining me on the podcast. Really appreciate it. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. Um, you've just recently put out a new single, uh, last couple of weeks, I think, isn't it? And Yeah. Is it still feel, is it just as exciting now, putting stuff new stuff out as it, as it ever was? Yeah, it is. It is, really. Um you still get that that sense of nerves um putting a new track out because you 
although you've worked on it for obviously for you know for in this case for quite a long time and had the you know had new material ready to go and everything you still you still get that sense of nerves because you don't know how it's going to go down even though you like it the mm. landscape changes every day people are into new stuff people listen to new stuff um and it's still you still get butterflies when you release tracks because you just honestly don't know how people are going to receive it. You don't know if they're still in the same headspace as they were when you last released music, whether they're going to sort of stick with you, whether they're going to like it if you've changed sound slightly. Um, so yeah, it's always, a, for me, it's a, I'm excited to get the tracks out there because by then I'm kind of sick of hearing them for a start. I'll be like, right, okay, it's, it's <laughs> yeah. gone. Once, once you release it, it's like, well, that's I can't do any more to that then. It's, it's kind of ceases to be yours. So I'm kind of, I'm pleased that I don't have to work on it anymore from that point of view. But then, I'm nervous as well because I don't know. I mean, no one likes no artists like releasing tracks for it for them to sort of, you know, flop. Um, yeah. And then you know, a little bit of pride kicks and you think, oh god, I wonder if it's gonna people are gonna like it. But then actually, really, I've always tried to go under the kind of mantra of if I like it, then other people will like it too. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's all you can do as an artist. Really, as soon as you start making music for other people, thinking, oh, you know, they're gonna they're going to love this, but I'm not quite sure about it, but you know, put it out anyway, which is easy mm. to do, especially when you, you make, you, you make music for a living. You kind of can fall into that trap of then thinking, well, this is, this is a moneymaker, this one. I'm not quite sure about it, but I'm going to put it out because I know it's going to make some money. But then I think if you're, if you just release music that you like, if you like it, then other people will like it too. You've got to trust your, trust your kind of instincts really with that. So it's, yeah, I still get nervous. I still get excited. It's probably different now, you know, I, I, you can't compare it to the first time you put an album out because that is mm. totally different. You've, you've got nothing to, ex, you know, you, don't, you haven't got anything to base it on. You don't, you've got no. N- no idea what to expect. But so this time be, I've got that experience under my belt. Obviously I've done seven albums before, so and other stuff, you know, remixes or whatever. So I know what happens. Mm. I know the process, but you're still bearing your soul, I guess. You're still kind of putting yourself out there saying, this is me right now as an artist. And then obviously what comes with that is is a mixture of nerves and excitement always, yeah. And is it just straight on to the next thing now or do you give yourself a little bit of a break or or what? Well, it's different now. It's different this time because normally I release out, I I work on albums and then I put albums out. Um, There's normally a lead single or or maybe two lead singles, normally just one these days. Gone are the days when you have four singles before an album and then put that (laughs) out. Um, <laughs> the good old days. So yeah, normally, obviously, I, I, I work on an album. I, I you know, be, be it eleven, twelve tracks, whatever. Make sure the album is completely finished, and then go into um, putting out a lead single and then releasing the album. But this time, we are going to release a few tracks uh, on their own, essentially, sort of drip feed people some tracks and then drop an album. Um, simply because it's been a while since I've released music, so um, I didn't know how it was going to how things were going to sit and it also people's attention spans these days are quite are quite small compared to how they were you can as an artist you can work on an album for like two years and then do the promo for it and it'd be all be disappeared in like three months four months and it's gone hmm. um, even less than that actually sometimes so I think drip feeding tracks fits with you know where we are now as a music consuming society with Spotify and stuff people like individual tracks sit better now but that's not to say mm. that I'm still not a huge fan of the album format I am I love it and I am working on an album that, that these tracks will come from but I'm just not finishing the album 
completely this time around, whereas before okay. I would do. Yeah, so it's kind of the yeah. technology has turned things around a little bit, hasn't it, in terms of how you release stuff, I guess. So, yeah, as you said, before mm. you would have done an album and then drip-fed stuff from the album, but now you have to lead up to that album a bit more. You do, yeah. Um, and there's so much music being released now also. So an album is such a big undertaking for an artist to do that you need to make sure that it's not just going to disappear. because And it can do quite easily now. It really can. Um so we thought this time, yeah, we do some do some tracks, do some sort of individual individual tracks up front and see how they go. Um, it's also kind of it would help. It would be interesting for me as a creator, kind of to see which tracks go down well. Also, um, because I've got a couple of options for the album in terms of I've, there's about twenty tracks on the go, maybe even twenty five, and some of those are a lot of different styles, kind of thing. Like my my albums kind of leap from genre to genre anyway, but it's going to depend on how the sort of singles go down as to how the album then, you know, the album kind of sounds, I think. Um, just trialing a few things out, which is the first time I've ever done that. Normally it's just like put together an album and shove it out and, you know, good luck to it. But now I might actually tailor it a little bit. <laughs> I've literally just completely contradicted myself of um, what I said earlier about yes. making music for people to like. <laughs> but I mean, if something goes down well, if people respond to something really well, then it's can't, you can't really argue with that, I suppose. But um, I'll make, you know, I'll make sure I like, I like everything. I, I like everything anyway. So it's really difficult. I like all genres. So it's hard for, hard for me to kind of, you know, um, get bogged down in genres really. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to see how it goes. Um, you know, I guess you're right though. You know, with this, this way of doing it, you can almost float ideas and see, particularly with streaming technology, you know, exactly which, what, which songs or which styles of songs are doing better than others. So you can yeah tailor you can. The, We're really, the final outcome. Yeah, you can. And we're kind of, it's all data now, you know. I look at my Spotify for Artists app and I can see exactly which songs are performing better in which country at any given time of day. So, I mean, it's it's bizarre, really. That amount of feedback is 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 quite, it's so useful at times, but it's very intimidating at other times. It's, you know, you take it with a pinch of salt, really. Ultimately, you're still, you know, you're, you're a music maker and, you know, all you can do really is, is make the best music you can. And that's what I'm trying to do, really, always. Um, and it's trying to, it's whether you take in other outside distractions or, or whether you don't or, you know, but ultimately you just, if you're true to yourself and you make music that you like, I think that's the, that's the way to go. And how did it all start for you with music? Cause you've, you know, built a career being a multi-instrumentalist really, haven't you? But did you start off yeah. with one instrument and, and go from there or, or yeah, you know, how old were you when you started playing and, and what was it you started out with? I was seven years old when I started playing and I started playing the piano. My gran um, started teaching me. She was a, uh, a concert pianist in the sort of Second World War in and around then. Um, I've still got her piano. It's, it's sat behind me now. Um, it's over 100 years old. It's the piano that she that was hers and that I learned to play piano on, which is, um, which is lovely. She's an old girl now. She's over 100 years old, but she's still going all right. Um, but yeah, no, so I started playing piano and then I think when I was at school, I think I... I saw some kid play the saxophone when I must have been about 10, 11. And he just looked the coolest, you know. Uh, and I remember, <laughs> I remember the girls kind of all looking at him thinking, you know. <laughs> and I just, I was like, that's the coolest instrument ever, the saxophone. I've got to learn how to play that. So <laughs> then I started learning how to play the saxophone. Um, and yeah. kind of, and I did, this was before kind of, you know, um, like 
jazz, before I kind of got into jazz a lot and there were no jazz grades then it was all classical music so I was learning classical music on yeah. a on a saxophone which is quite bizarre to do looking back but now there's all like jazz grades and if you learn the saxophone now you're kind of into jazz and playing jazz straight away which is kind of what saxophone sounds best doing really um but I was learning all this classical stuff and um it kind of wasn't I mean I got you know I got quite good I did my grade eight and all that sort of stuff and and then I just I think then I left I went to university and we started we got put into like an ensemble group and I I didn't know how to play jazz I didn't know how to improvise I'd learned classical saxophone mm. so like these guys were expecting me to jam out a solo or sort of whatever and I couldn't do it I, I didn't know how to play there was no music in front of me there was like it was bizarre so I think and up until this point I'd, I'd picked sort of picked up the guitar um started like learning like strumming along to sort of Oasis and Blur Records this was back in the day of, of Britpop and then mm. kind of then picked up the bass and I, it was just a progressive thing I think and then obviously when when I started putting my own tracks together and certainly for the first album sort of press on it was it was almost uh out of necessity really that because it was just me you know putting together that this this record and stuff like that so I didn't know anyone where I was. Mm. I was up in London. I'd only just moved there. Didn't know any other musicians. Didn't know anyone where was there. It, where was it you grew up, by the way? I grew up in Devon, uh, in Exeter, which is actually where I am now. If it's come full circle, but um, at the mm -hmm. time when I was when I was, certainly when I was writing Press On, I was in London. And I didn't know anyone. I just started working for Sky um, as a trainee dubbing mixer. Um, so during the day I was there, and then during the night I was working on Press On, and I didn't know any yeah any other musicians. So I kind of had to put everything together myself. So. It was, um, yeah, it was a bit of a journey, but it, I always say with with the instruments, it's kind of, once you know one quite well, you tend to be able to pick up another, not to a virtuoso level, of course, that takes years of practice and hours of practice, but I get by, I can, and with the beauty of overdubs and that sort of stuff, I can layer things and, mm -hmm. and do that sort of stuff. And it always made sense to me for some reason, it always kind of, I didn't even think twice about sort of picking, trying to pick up instruments and learning them. And I, it just kind of was the way I wanted to go. It just sort of felt right. I just thought, well, I'll do, do that myself then, I guess. It can't be that hard. What can, you know, mm. so I just did it. And I think it was the, it was the, the sort of fearlessness of youth and not kind of knowing. Mm. And, and I didn't really know any better. I knew no better. So I just like, yeah, that sounds all right kind of thing. Yeah. Um, and then just went from there. I mean, I wouldn't do that now. I did, actually, I did do it for, for the last <laughs> album I'm here now, but it was it's in a slightly different way. I had kind of engineers and stuff helping me out and all that sort of thing. But yeah, Press On was very much a, you know, not knowing any better record and just cracking on with it, really. So was it just all recorded in different places? And presumably you didn't really have a studio at that point. No, it was a bedroom. It was very much a bedroom album. I made it in my bedroom. Um, yeah. I had minimal equipment. I had, I think, one guitar, one bass, obviously my trusty saxophone. Yeah. A little laptop. Actually, it wasn't a little laptop. It was a Dell laptop. It was like 17-inch laptop, this thing. And I always remember going into work on the on the train and opening this thing and um, when people sat next to me and this bloody thing was huge. It was hot, <laughs> trying to like check mixes on the train. And everyone like sat next to me like trying to move up because this 17-inch monster of a laptop was in the way. Yeah. It was heavy as well. Um, yeah, so... Uh, it was a bedroom record. It was. I think we did some of the strings at Sky on the downtime on the sly. Oh, yeah. I think one of my one of my mates at Sky, <laughs> Finn, he was a he was a, vi a violinist, and his mate Joe was a cellist. And we went in there uh, a couple of nights and did uh, did a sly string recording. But apart from that, everything was bedroom. Yeah, everything was bedroom stuff. Really, you did the drums there too. 
Yeah, there weren't... Oh, actually, no. Do you know what? There weren't a lot of live drums on Press On. Most of them were sampled. Okay. Um, but the only li- the live drums on the record were When the Sun Goes Down. And that was when I was really into the new master sounds. So I found the new master sounds, the funk band from Leeds, in case yeah. anyone isn't aware that listened to this. Um, this was around the time when I was at uni, about 2001. I went to see them. They played in Leicester, and I just thought they were the coolest thing ever, especially Eddie Roberts, the guitarist. Yeah. I just thought, my Christ, like that's how you do it. And ever since then, so Press On came out in 2007, 2001, I saw the Master Sounds, went through uni, left uni, worked for Sky. Then the opportunity came up to go up to Leeds. And I just reached out to Eddie and just said, look, because I thought, right, I'll play, I'll play drums again, like the, the, the naivety of youth. I'd never do this now. I would not put myself in a position where, because Eddie really at the time was one of my sort of musical heroes. He was that good. I, I, I held him in that high esteem that yeah. I just, you know, yeah. I wanted him on the record, but no way now would I phone up a musical hero of mine and say hey come and jam I'll play the drums and because I just didn't I didn't think I was that good but obviously then yeah. you know I was like yeah yeah I'll, I'll play drums and we'll, we'll go up and do this and um yeah so the, those drums were cut at the basement of the wardrobe venue in Leeds um a guy called Neil yeah. Innes on bass who actually runs um ATA records now all things analog um and me on drums Eddie on guitar um onto a tape machine I think we did about three takes and that was it. Um, and then overdub some <laughs> flute later, a guy called Rob Lavers and a bit of percussion. And that was it really. Um, so those are the only live drums, I think, on Press On. There were all of it, all the other was sampled or programmed or chopped up. And um, But yeah, mm. no, good times. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah, Simon, the drummer from the New Master Sounds has been on this show. Simon, and, uh, yeah, of course I saw the has. New Master Sounds actually about three or four weeks ago. I did went you? I went to see them in Leeds. They did a little homecoming show. Yeah, it was amazing. No, oh, they're still they're great. so good. That. Still rocking it. Yeah. They're still brilliant. Yeah, st- they only do about three, four gigs a year, I think now. But they, because uh, they're all in different places. But yeah, they're they are. They're like a like a transatlantic intercontinental band now, aren't they? They're all in different continents, sort of thing. Yeah, they are. But where do you think then? I'm, I'm amazed, that, you know, because I, I, the traditional thing with you know playing music, or especially when you're young, is you know you join a band or you try and you know work with other people, and to have that sort of confidence to just think well i'll just do it myself where did that where do you think that confidence came from i get i know you're saying it's just kind of like you didn't know any better but where do you think that all came yeah from? it's it's weird because i always did want to be in a band i i really wanted to be in a band all the way through my teens basically i i was obsessed with um starting a band i, I tried on a number of occasions to start a band uh, and going on tour that was my that was my mm-hmm. thing. I was just like, yeah, that must be so cool going, you know, being in a band, going on tour, doing the band thing, getting signed. And for whatever reason, it just didn't, it didn't happen. I mean, I didn't try massively hard. I had a couple of bands and stuff, but it was never going to set the world on fire. So, but the the whole doing it yourself thing, I think probably came from two people, two albums. And one was um, Play by Moby that was released in, I think, 99. Because um, when I first heard that record... I didn't know what it was really. I hadn't really listened to a lot of dance music at the time, but I know it wasn't classic, you know, classical sort of dance music, but that was what it was, you know, classed as at the time. And I remember listening to it with a mate. We're on a train, I think, going to visit another mate of ours at, at uni, at his uni at the time. And I was like, what the hell is this? And he had to tell me that it was a guy called Moby who put all this together himself. Um, and I was blown away by this. I just thought, how do you do that? Like, as a producer to me at the time was someone that worked with bands. It wasn't someone who, who created these otherworldly, you know, soundscapes and an amazing kind of, you know, um, sort of 
just different universes that you can sink into, but all by themselves. I didn't, I didn't, wasn't aware of all that. Um, and then the other, so, the, so that album kind of blew me away. And, and when I found out there was just one guy, and then the other record that did came slightly before, which was DJ Shadows introducing, which again, you know, I listened to that and, and, you know, just that was the record really actually, I think that sort of started me on my sort of funk and soul uh, obsession, odyssey journey whatever um because i didn't i didn't hear that record until about 2001 when i was at university again those i, I heard those records about a year apart introducing was done in 96 but i heard it in about 2001 and as soon as i heard it something clicked in me and i thought that's that's just i've heard nothing like that that is just insanely good and i think it was the organicness of it i'd heard a lot of soul and funk records growing up because of my dad especially soul like stacks atlantic you know Motown all that stuff so the, the the sonic quality of that record appealed to me and then obviously he had the the whole hip-hop aesthetic going on with it and just the soundscapes he created just the just the, the spoken word bits I still use spoken word now there's spoken word on you know the latest single wide open I still love that and that comes from Shadow for sure that is just completely from him so that record just showed me what it was what was possible with a stack of soul and funk records and uh, an imagination you know um it was that just changed that changed the game for me and, and and play in a different way um but did the same thing so those two records is where the whole kind of do it yourself thing comes from but as soon as i heard those i knew it was possible and those are the first records that i heard it on so that was it that was it then hmm. you mentioned your dad had a lo- whole lot of soul stuff what was he what was he listening to what was what was the influence there he um so he originally so I, I get my love of like 60s bands from him as well. So stuff like the Small Faces, especially. Um, what did he fact, do? For a what living? What does he do? Yeah. He's, oh, he's retired now. He's long retired now. Um, he's got his um, got his slippers now and his cardigans. Um, <laughs> what but, did he do? <laughs> what did he do? Um, he did a few things, but at the time... Oh, no, I think he... T- I mean, he did, did quite a few jobs over the years, my dad. Um, he worked for the NHS for a long time. That was his... That, in sort of accounts. That was what he did most of the time. Mm. Mm-hmm. um but his but love of soul, like, soul oh he loved it i mean his he's a mod basically he had the lambretta and <laughs> all that sort of stuff back in the day um always always says he should have kept it every time i mentioned oh yeah i really should have kept that every time um <laughs> but his my love of the small faces came from him and actually the small faces sample that i used in um touch my soul on the on press on steve marriott that if i if it, i wouldn't have heard that track if it wouldn't have been for my dad so but as well as all the soul, as well as all the sorry, the sixty stuff like the Beatles, the Kinks, you know, the Who, Small Faces. He also loved American soul, especially stuff on Atlantic, uh, Stax, Motown, obviously as well. But Motown, he liked the stuff. Um, he liked Aretha Franklin and Rufus Thomas, um, obviously mm-hmm. Otis Redding, Wilson Pickett, those guys. He loved all that stuff. Um, and so that was always playing in the house. So I guess, but I never really took a lot of notice of it because you don't when you're a, you're a kid. Because I was into, you know, I was sort of 15, 16, uh, even earlier. And I was into like Blur Oasis. And I was into that stuff at the time. I wasn't into the soul mm. and funk stuff really. Because I was, I guess I was a bit too young. I didn't get it yet. It was a bit, it was went over my yeah. head really. Um, but yeah, so dad really, dad's record collection was the catalyst for for the for the first load of samples from Press On. I went through his record collection and there's a few on there. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I a big, big nod to my dad really, because he did get me into all that stuff. <laughs> my whole family really are quite musical. They all, they all love their thing. Like my uncles are more kind of, they're slightly later generations. They love their earth, wind and fire and, 
the Ohio players and you know all those guys the the sort of more sort of um 70s stuff um but yeah my dad's my dad's record collection did take a bit of a hammering um during the making of press on for sure and I've still I've still got a few of them now although he doesn't know it <laughs> <laughs> do you have a set way of building up tunes then now does it always start with the drums or does it always start with the bass or does it always start with the you know piano or saxophone is there a set way or how do they come about they never come about the same way, I would say. Um, I have my kind of favourite sort of ways of of playing around. I mean, I still use samples. I still kind of love the that kind of thing of taking something old and making something new with it. Mm. I, I just that that does it for me. I, in fact, I kind of respond a little bit better when I have something like that than a blank canvas. Although it does depend on what sort of mood I'm in. I think sometimes you you have you know things that just pop into your head and you think, oh, I've got to get that down. Um, so then you just, you know, I, I normally starts with the drums and I just pull up a drum loop or get on the kit and play if I'm in a studio and then just build the track from there. And it's, there's a lot of editing that goes on. I kind of, I, I get a lot of stuff down, just get it out of my head and then sift through it later. Um, I'm a big sifter. I like kind of going through stuff and sort of, you know, chopping stuff up and moving stuff about and until it sounds right, you know, um, it's not, a, an immediate thing. My music's quite labour intensive, I would say, um, but that's kind of what I love about it. Also, you know, I, I don't love—I I like the fact that I have to work for it, <laughs> mm. which um, which might sound a bit weird, but it's it it makes it all the more satisfying at the end. And there's always quite a lot of elements. It's not my tracks aren't—you wouldn't say they were minimal. Mm. They were—they're quite kind of full. And to make full tracks, you need to, you know, sort of put the graft in. Yeah. Um, and it does take a while, but yeah, it does. To, in answer to your question, it does differ, um, most of the time. Yeah. I guess a challenge as well of doing the music your way, you know, not having a band and overdubbing everything and samples, you know, it must be tricky to reproduce that live or to try and tour, you know, with a lot of the stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that has been, yeah, that's been a, a, a 15 year old headache. That one. <laughs> um, you always, I think you always, it's the whole live studio debate, isn't it? I think you yeah. always have to make, like, do you make music? thinking, well, I'm going to have to play this live, so we're going to have to dial down on the production here, because mm -hmm. otherwise we're going to be in trouble. It's going to sound thin when we play it. Yeah. Which I think a lot of bands, a lot of bands, that's a really valid question, because I think that a lot of them tour a lot, so they're going to have to figure out how to play that record out mm -hmm. a lot. So they that then informs the studio process more, I think. And also, if you're touring a lot, you can, you can road test new stuff yeah. on the road, and then you kind of come back in. So that that kind of I understand that sort of way of way of going about it if you're in a band for me being a producer I solely just try and make the best track I can and then figure it out later basically and technology has played a huge part now because when I first started the all the stuff that you can have like triggers and and, and kind of um, all the electronics that you can trigger off and the samples that you can trigger off you didn't really have that back then you know, so now it's a different ball game. But having said that, the last tour that we did back in 2019, I think it was now, pre-COVID, um, it was all live. There was no, there's no samples or anything. It was horns, guitar, bass, mm. drums, keys, vocals, um, which is classic. That's the classic. And we just and we arranged the tracks to fit that lineup. Um, and obviously, it's going to sound different. It's clearly going to sound different from all the samples and layers and everything. But that's kind of the beauty of it. You kind of you know the the audience they're not stupid they know it's going to sound different they know it's going to sound you know completely live but that you know they always responded to that because we we did it come the end we we're doing it really well so 
I think, yeah, it's sometimes it's an issue. I'm not going to lie. Sometimes I, I, you know, for some of these new tracks, they're quite kind of heavy on the production. And I'm thinking next time we tour, how the hell are we going to do that? In fact, we're talking about touring next year. There is going to be a tour next year. Right. Um, and I'm like, well, I can't take a 16 piece band on tour. So how the hell are we going to do that? There might have to be some electronics involved because I've gone a bit, a bit nuts with it. It's just the layers of it. So strings and horns and, yeah. you know, in it, it's, it makes sense in the song. But then when you play it live, it's like, oh God, this is going to, yeah. There's only so many splits you can have on your keyboard player, like triggering off different stuff before it starts to sound a little bit lame. So, <laughs> yes, um, it'll be it'll be good. I'm sure we'll, we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. And where, where's the tour going to be? And you know, do you enjoy? How do you find touring? I mean, because you, you strike me as someone who really enjoys the studio. I mean, from what we've been talking about, and enjoys the creative yeah. process. How much do you enjoy the the tour? Um, having dreamed of doing the touring when you were younger, how much do you actually enjoy it in practice? <laughs> yeah. That's a really good question, actually, because logistically, it's an absolute pain to try and manage, <laughs> you know, people's diaries, to, even to get people rehearsing and stuff. Because I've got, I'm not a working band, so I've got every time I put an album out or every time I want a tour, I've got to call up session guys and say, hey, look, putting a band together. And then normally their first question is, well, what's it paying? Yeah. And then I've got to say, well, you know, it's, you know, bless musicians, man, they're, you know, following the, following the green. But that's kind of how it is. They've got a living to yeah. earn. So I can't, you know, it's my name, it's my name on it. So I've got to, you know, take responsibility and say, well, actually, you know, this is, this is the deal. Um, so the logistics of it and the organization are a pain. I, I'm not going to pretend that I enjoy those because I don't at all. However, the live stuff, the actual playing together when you're in a band and you're locked in together and you have those tiny little moments on stage, they may only last like a couple of seconds and you might only have one of them in a gig. You might have none of them. You might have a shocking gig that you can't hear each other. But when they happen, it's like nothing else. It's like nothing else on earth when you're locked in with other musicians and you're just on that plane together. It's amazing. And that's what you do it for, you know, um, it doesn't make sense from a emotional calculator point of view, the amount of effort you put in to what you get out. Cause those moments are so fleeting, yeah. um, but they are just the best. And that's why I do it. Um, and I, I come from a live music background. I, you know, I'm a musician first and foremost, whereas some people come to, to the production stuff from a DJ perspective, they're DJs first, then they, they do the production thing. I've always been a musician first. So without any live playing and also you know i feel a bit kind of bereft of of connection really i think that's another that's another point is that as an artist especially now so much kind of engagement is conducted uh through social media um and it and that's great and that's fine that's the world we live in but when you go and play a gig and you have an audience in front of you it's such a physical thing. You can feel energy in a room. You can feel their response. You can feel the crackle and the, you know, it's, 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 it's another thing. So if you take that out of the equation, there's something missing, I think, mm -hmm. you know, and you miss that. And I miss that now. Um, and also, you know, it, it, it gets you meeting people. It meets, you meet the people who buy your music and that's, that's a really special thing. Um, and which doesn't happen, obviously, if you don't tour. Um, so it's, you do it vicariously through social media, but then that's, it's just not, not the same. Yeah. So that's, I have missed touring. I've missed touring a lot. Um, so hopefully, fingers crossed it will happen. We have, I have actually got to put the band together, uh, together again for next year. I haven't started doing that yet, but we have been, there's a couple of shows that we've been booked for in America, which will be the first time I've played over there, right. which will be amazing. So 
fingers crossed it all works out. It's such, uh, like I said, the logistics these days of getting across to other countries. And, you know, I would love to do a tour in Europe because I always used to DJ in Europe a lot back in the day. Mm. But how that's going to work now with Brexit and all that, I don't know. Um, no. Fingers crossed we can do a few. Not sure. We'll see. But yeah, live live is, I do miss live. It's, it's, it's like something else really. Yeah. But yeah, fingers crossed. In terms of your studio, I think, I'm, I'm right in thinking you built your own studio over the years. Um, how much of a... Yeah, I've... Yeah. yeah how much of a sort of labour of love has that been? <laughs> oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's... it's My God, I've been, I've been through so many iterations of of studio setups and and buying gear and like vintage gear and and oh man it's it's exact did you just say yeah. a labor of love i think you, you I did. did you say that yeah that's exactly what it is it's a labor of love you do it because you love it and i i love kind of equipment and, and vintage equipment and all that sort of stuff but my god is it a pain like it just breaks all the time and when it works it's a bit like live playing really but like playing live when it works when you're locked in and it's you know when you get like a couple of days use out of it, then it's fantastic. And then it breaks again and then you curse it. And then it costs you a fortune to repair. If you can find a repairman who knows how that particular compressor or EQ works any, anymore, <laughs> yeah. you know? So it's, it's, a, it's a real pain. It's a pain. But yeah, I've, I've built up a few bits of equipment over the years. I've, t- I've tried the whole big studio. I had a big studio in the country that was all kind of mostly analog and um, I just jumped on different instruments and, and played them. I've tried the more sort of smaller project studio. I've had vintage gear. I've had modern gear. I've had lots of different equipment over the years. And one thing kind of stands out and that's, it doesn't matter <laughs> what the equipment is. It really doesn't. You can get obsessed with it. And obviously, you know, I love, I love equipment. I love, you know, I'm a producer. I love all that mm. stuff. But I think I've got to the point of my career now where it's all about the ideas really. And I love... I love obsessing about, you know, a microphone or whatever, but actually it doesn't matter. You need the idea. Like the song is always king, mm. always. And I had a vocalist in here the other day, actually. We've we've worked together before, but I hadn't seen him in a long time. Um, and it just, like, I had, the, I had a choice of about three mics. And in the end, we kind of, I had to get a mic up really quickly because he was losing the idea that he was mm. having. And I just shoved the mic up in front of him and it just sounded amazing. And I didn't even mm. th- give it a second thought. Um, and it just, and it, it just means that it just, it, it doesn't matter really. Mm-hmm. You just got to, you just, you know, capture the idea and then figure it out later. Cause no one's going to be listening to the track after the event and thinking, Oh, that vocal could have, could have recorded that vocal through a vintage mic. It would have sounded so much better. <laughs> like they take the track at face value, yeah. you know, if the track's great, the track's great. So yeah. it doesn't matter. But I think it's all part of it, you know, obsessing about, equipment and stuff and you know I've, I've enjoyed doing it over the over the years but i think those days are, are pretty much over now if i'm honest having said that they'll probably you know buy another tape machine next week or something or you know <laughs> <laughs> so do you have your studio in your house now basically or is it is it a separate um sort of space yeah i've moved to exeter recently um so i've been here about five months uh and i'm still building it actually well, i say building it putting it together um and it's kind of half done at the moment but it's done just enough to uh, finish wide open off uh, which I did and now I've started something else but yeah there will be some more equipment arriving um, not vintage equipment I have to say because of the uh, reliability of it but yeah my studio's in here and again I've had studios where I've made a concerted effort to have them away from my house mm-hmm. so that I can shut the door at night walk home sort of separate the work life thing 
but I've also had them in my house. Um, and there's pros and cons to both, you know. Um, having it in in the house at the moment suits me, I think. Um, it does mean that I can't make loads of noise, but that's okay. Mm. That's fine. Um, but yeah, so it's it's in my it's in my house at the moment, um, and that's that's how it is right now. And do you yeah. treat it like you know nine to five? It's like get in the studio at the same time every day and get cracking, or is it more just you know as and when? I'm a bit of a stickler for habit. I've I've got quite a, ru- a routine. Um, I have quite a rigid body clock. I wake up. I wake up early. I kind of I general days I'd sort of go to the gym and then I come back hit the studio. It's I've always treated music as a 9 to 5. Mm-hmm. And I remember and it's weird because I never thought I would do that because I always thought kind of musicians are sort of, you know, they have the reputation of being quite, you know, get up at midday, mm-hmm. you know, maybe um, you know, <laughs> take it easy for a bit and then crawl into the studio, do do something a little bit and then just go off and gig and repeat next day. Um and that's cool if it works for you, but for me, I do remember reading a, it was an interview with Damon Albarn. This was mm-hmm. years ago, years ago. I think around about the time that I first started putting out tracks, um, even before Press On came out. And he was talking about uh, uh, his routine and the interviewer asked him why he was so prolific. And he just said, you know, I treat it like a nine to five. I treat it like a job. And I always read that. I read that and I thought, yeah, do you know what? That That makes sense. That appeals to me. So ever since then, I've tried to do the same thing. And throughout my career, I've I've always, you know, kind of just, yeah, treated it as such. Like mm-hmm. it's a job. And some days, nothing, you know, nothing happens. Like you come in and you're bereft of ideas. And for whatever reason, the, the creative juices just aren't there. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a hard day because then you've got to kind of think, well, and sometimes my my first instinct is to try and force it and to try and kind of get something out and just keep going until something comes out. But actually... I've learned the older I've gotten, the the more I've learned just to step back and let something come. If you know, if it's there, it's gonna it's gonna happen. If not, and there's always admin to do, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's always always emails to send. Especially a label and stuff. It's like, well, okay, yeah. So that's an admin day then, isn't yeah. it? Because nothing's happening here. So yeah, you know, better uh, better do some emails. <laughs> so, yeah. That's the interesting thing you mentioned. Though you mentioned the label because I was going to ask you about that because I guess it fits in with the whole sort of DIY ethos of the music making the music, but it's from my point of view, yeah. notable that you know you started off with stuff being released on freestyle, but relatively quickly you started releasing mm. stuff on your own label, didn't you? LOA Records, and now it's Bastion Music Group, I think yeah. it's called, isn't it? But that's why, right. Yeah. Why did you? Wh- at what point did you decide? Right, I'm going to start instead of you know relying on labels to put my stuff out. I'm going to start putting stuff out myself and taking control of that aspect as well. Yeah, it was, I mean, running a label is hard work. Mm. Uh, it's definitely hard work. There's a lot of admin involved, a lot more than I um, initially thought there would be. Um, for me, running, I mean, I obviously I signed with Freestyle to begin with, and that was in 2007. Um, and fair play to them for giving me a chance, because obviously, you know, it was my, I hadn't released any music before, so I was completely unproven. Um, and they gave me a leg up. And I think when you sign to a label, you make compromises, mm-hmm. you know, and, and as an artist, ultimately, you want your vision to come out, which is fine. That's why you're kind of doing it. You want whatever musical ideas are in you to come out. But then obviously, it's got to go through a label if you're signed to a label. And, and there could be there could be tension there. there. There might be disagreements there. And I, you know, I think after a while, I just wanted to do my own thing. You know, it's simple as that, really. Also, my my tracks, I was lucky that my tracks started to get used in like film and tv stuff mm. so all of a sudden the money started becoming uh more of a 
I wouldn't say motivator, but a more of a kind of it was it was an issue where the money was going. Publishing becomes everything, doesn't it? With that, yeah. I mean, it was it was less about the publishing; it was more about the master recording. Actually, it was the okay, master so, side which Freestyle right. owned at the time. So, I think. Look, I mean, I'm I'm not gonna sit here and say they were a bad label at all. They weren't. They were great at the time. But then, as soon as that started happening, I think it changed the dynamic. And mm. the more money that comes into something, then things start to change. And it did. Yes. And I just, after a while, I just thought, look, I've got to, I've got to do my my own thing here, um, because I, I, you know, ultimately. I have a daughter, I had, you know, um, a mortgage, um, and if it was going to make more financial sense to start my own label, then I would, I would do that. So I did, but you know, little did I know that actually the amount of work that goes involved for that, you know, labels work hard for their cut, you know, and then, so when I did set up the label, I was then the label and the artist. So I was having to work so hard, um, so hard. It was, it was mad. Luckily now I'm in a position where I can employ um, label manager um, Joss who does a fantastic job um, he does all the stuff that I don't want to do um, and there's a lot <laughs> that I don't want to do <laughs> in terms of running a label <laughs> but um, he just he just sorts all that out which is lovely um, but yeah it was it was necessity I think it was just the right time I think you know by then I'd had I've got I had a, a name you know people kind of knew what I was about I'd released mm-hmm. records I had a bit of a track record um and we just we just went for it, you know. It's um, me and me and my wife at the time, Emma. We just we we just cracked on. Mm. Um, like I said, knowing had we do, had I known how much work it was, how would we have maybe hung on for a couple of years, possibly? <laughs> um, but you know, I don't regret it because ultimately, you know, it means that as an artist, I'm in charge of where my music goes, and that's I think that's very important um, for me at this stage, anyway. Yeah. For an artist like you know, just um, coming into the coming into the um, the industry, I think you need that leg up sometimes. Or not, you know, people make it work either way. Certainly now it's easier than ever to release your own music. But um, at the time, I thought I could go it alone. So um, so I did. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned the TV shows. I mean, I, I just looked. You, your music's been on loads of them now, hasn't it? I noticed it's been on two of my favourite shows, BoJack Horseman. That was that must have been that was <laughs> yeah. a good one. And Brooklyn Nine-Nine. I mean, it must yeah. be really satisfying. Brooklyn Nine-Nine, yeah. Yeah, how... how has, yeah, well, how does that feel when you get that call? It must be pretty good. It feels great. I'm not going to lie to you. It does feel great. Because do you know what? Also, there was a period of time, and this was when I first started, it must have been about the first seven years of releasing music. There was not one. Nothing got used um, in, in syncs and stuff. And I saw all my kind of contemporaries at the time, contemporary artists, get get music on TV and, and everything was being used of, of theirs and not one track of mine was being used. And after a while, and I was, at the time I wasn't earning much money. I was, you know, wasn't, my, my music was not earning a lot of money at all. Mm. You know, it was, a, it was a, almost at the point of which, well, look, do I do this anymore? Like, what well, you know, I'm going to have to make a decision here soon. And I nearly, I nearly quit several times. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pretend it hasn't been hard. It was, it was so tough. Those first six mm. years were so tough. Um, but you just do it because you don't know any better and you think, you know, you trust in what you're making. You know, I knew I was making some good music. So I just, I guess more in hope than anything else. I just hope that, you know, that situation would change and, and financially it would become more viable because I wanted to provide for my family. Um, so, but yeah, luckily, I mean, I think the first one was, it was a track called Party that I did with, um, Wax and Herbal Tea. I think it got used in a Adidas and Foot Locker commercial in the states and this was in 2012 2013 and i think the music supervision scene is quite a small scene whereby if if your music starts to get used with a couple of them then it gets used by quite a few of them and it was a really good run that i had for a few years that it just the tracks just kept popping up in different places you know um (laughs) 
and it's 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 lovely when you kind of when you uh when one comes along that you actually that the show that you actually like like you said bojack horseman or brooklyn 99 mm. or there was a track um uh it's a series on amazon called startup that mm. um a track of mine i think missing me got used in in it and i just i just happened to be on amazon one day and i, I saw it come up i was like, oh, i'll give this a watch and it t- turned out to be really really good you know, a lot of them aren't. A lot of them are pretty poor. My music's been on some absolute howlers, you know, as well. Absolute rotters, some of them. You know, never to be seen. There, there, there's, there's one in particular. I'm not going to tell you on it. I'm not going to tell. I'll tell you privately, but it was, oh, man. Anyway, um, it was, um, yeah. So when when it happens to be that, it, you know, a track gets used on something good, it's, it's amazing. It's really cool. And actually, one of the nicest ones was um, my... Uh, I think my mum was a big Pierce, big Pierce Brosnan fan, <laughs> and one of my tracks got used on a on a track. Sorry, on a film called Spinning Man. Um, right. It was actually it was a really really amazing cast. I don't. I, I again, I haven't watched it. I need to watch this film. <laughs> it was with Pierce Brosnan, Mini Driver, Mini Driver, and um, and Guy Guy Pierce. Oh yeah. Like hell of a cast, and yeah, yeah called Spinning Man, and. My mum was a huge Pierce Brosnan fan, so I was like, "Yeah, mum, my one of my tracks got used in the new Pierce Brosnan film," and she said, "What? What?" <laughs> and kind of like, "Yeah," and then <laughs> and then went to rush out and watch it. So when you know, when stuff You'd like made that happens, it in your mum's eyes, that, I've made it. I know absolutely. And um, yeah, there was there was also another thing again involving my mum. Bizarrely, I was I took her out for a Mother's Day lunch. I remember this in uh, Jamie Oliver restaurant, um, and we were having lunch, and all of a sudden, my one of the tracks came on. Uh, you know, on the on the in the restaurant, and it was one of my tracks. And again, she went nuts and started telling the waiter, "That's my son's music that you're you're playing, and it's, he's right here. It's my son." So, like, oh, mom, come on. Um, <laughs> but no, look, it's it's lovely. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna lie to you. It's it's just kind of. I think it's obviously financially it's lovely, but it's nice when you hear your music in a different context as well. You know, when yeah, you hear your music yeah. over. I mean, my music's been on like Sky Sports a lot and over like rugby promos and stuff like that. And it's kind of you know me as a sports fan. I love rugby. I love cricket, and you know all the rest of it. It's great. It's really nice when you hear that. You know, um, and it's just another. It's another kind of just avenue that um, that you're that it kind of opens up when you do this. You know, so it's yeah. Um, and I guess take because you've long. got that because you've got that that label yourself that's all stuff that you're now reaping the benefits of rather than other people reaping the benefits of that yeah that's right yeah that's that's the thing it's kind of it's if you own all the rights to it then obviously you know there's less of the less of the pie to Mm. share with other people so it's yeah um that having been said it would be nice to have a few more because Mm -hmm. they dried up recently so you know if any uh <laughs> if anyone's listening, <laughs> but no, it's, um, no, it's all out, good. I'm, I'm kind of. Do you have people going out pitching that then to shows, or is it just it comes? Yeah, about if it comes. Yeah, about? well, that's yeah, that's what kind of publishers do these days. Is kind mm. of pitch music. I mean, look, it, it's such that also that's changed as well since I started first making music. The the whole sync thing now is or sync income is or sync you know synchronization licenses for mm. people wondering what sync is. Not a bathroom sync. <laughs> um, it's kind of yeah, that it's huge now. I mean that. I was just talking to talking to a friend about it today that you know sync if your if your music gets gets used in something huge it can make or break an artist you know now yeah. whereas bef- whereas back in the day that it just wasn't the case like people are chasing syncs now the competition is ridiculous like music supervisors get sent so much music these days mm-hmm. um so they you know they are relatively few and far between now compared to what they were but um but yeah there's there's sync agencies there's obviously publishers they're obviously pitching music all the time to to try and kind of you know get you know get that 
um, get a track in in the in the latest you know film or TV series or whatever. But there's also much more TV being made now. There's obviously with Netflix mm-hmm. and Amazon, they're all they're all got in-house production companies, so they're they're producing mu- uh, films and TV and content left, right, and center. So you know it needs to be soundtracked most of it. Mm-hmm. So you know the opportunities are there, but obviously it's you know the money involved is not as much as it was. I don't think. Um, but you know, yeah, like I said, I'll take them all day long, <laughs> even the howlers. You know. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the final thing I was going to ask you about was that you've you've collaborated with quite a lot of people, you know, lots of singers, obviously, but lots of other yeah. musicians too. And I know you mentioned, you know, just you just approached Eddie Roberts back in the day and asked him asked him to be on it. Mm. But is that how those collaborations come about most of the time? You just ask people, or does it come about through you know just accidental, or how do they all happen? It genuinely does. It, it kind of. Um, yeah, I mean, every now and again, someone will send me a link to a vocalist and say, oh, you got to check, you know, check this guy out. He's amazing. Um, in fact, my dad did it the other day. Um, he <laughs> sent me a link of a of a band. Um, and he, it, it, they're, they're like a soul band. I think they do soul covers most of the mm-hmm. time. But he's like, you got to check this singer out. Um, he's amazing. And actually, and I, and I was like, what's this? What's this going to be? <laughs> um, but I, I, I clicked on it and the guy's got an amazing voice, an incredible voice. So I hit them up on their Instagram and said, look, would your singer be interested in maybe, you know, adding some vocals to a track? Yeah. Um, and they're like, yeah, sure. So, I mean, Brilliant. that is as easy as that. That is where social media is invaluable because you mm. have got a direct um, direct access to, to, to an artist that, you know, that you do you want to ask previously in years gone by, you'd have to go through their management, you'd have to track their label down, and then you'd have to, you know, it's just that's, you know, that's a pain. Because then, you know, you're lucky if it gets past management, certainly if they're any kind of name, mm. you know, management will filter that out. But if you go into the, you know, go onto Instagram, slide into their DMs, and you're like, you know, <laughs> do you fancy a collaboration? And, you know, that's how it kind of happens now. Um, I do kind of have a list of people that I'd like to work with. But at the same time, you know, I never kind of try and sort of pre you know don't talk about it too much because i don't want to jinx it but i all yeah. kind of i'm always on the, on the on the lookout for you know for people to work with this i mean that the collaborate collaborative thing is always you know it's so rewarding when it when it works you know um there's nothing like having you know being in a room with someone and kind of vibing off them and, and creating stuff and and you know laying stuff down I and mean, it's all very well doing stuff on my own and i love it i, I work well on my own i'm used to it but then you bring someone else into the mix, especially a vocalist, and and things just start to happen. Things start to come together, and that's the real beauty of it. I think you know, without that, I mean, I can make instrumental music all day long. I, I mean, I, I happily do that, but then bringing a vocalist in is just yeah, it adds a whole new element of you know to the to the track and just to the whole process in general. You know. Yeah, and do you write the lyrics yourself in those situations, or would you get the the, the singer to contribute those? It varies. I have been known to write lyrics. Mm. They're not my strongest suit, I have to say. <laughs> but if pushed, <laughs> um, most of the time, I have to say most of the time, the vocalist writes the lyrics because normally they're kind of comfortable writing their own words. Yeah. They feel more comfortable knowing that the lyrics have come from them. Sometimes they mean something to them, yeah. which again evokes you know an emotion out of them, which is, that's what you want. You want that performance. You yeah. want that kind of emotion to, to be conveyed onto the track. If you give them words sometimes, especially if it's really personal to you, they're going to look at them and it's just words to them. But then yeah. if it's their words and it's come from there, you know, they're, they're going to perform them in a certain way that, that, you know, you can't, that you can't do. So yeah, uh, most of the time the lyrics come from the vocalist. Mm. Um, sometimes, most of the time I'll actually, I'll, you know, I'll give them an idea, say, look, I, I want to write a track about this. Um, and they'll start, they'll start it off. 
Um, again, the other day, it happened the other day, he came in, I'd already sent in the instrumental, he had the chorus, but he didn't have the verses. So we kind of jammed out verses, lyrics, like, nah, that word doesn't fit there, take that one out, replace that one. You know, do that yeah. melody again, but maybe the second time go up instead of going down. And then the choruses were there, did a little bridge, and that was that. And it was, you know, when it works, it's so it's so lovely. It just kind of, it's like fireworks happening, you know? Mm. Um, which you don't get on your own. It's a different kind of satisfaction. It's, it's it's not as much energy, but you know it can it can be quite it can be just as satisfying, but in a completely different way. But for me, writing an instrumental and then getting a vocalist in and then just adding something completely different and maybe even taking it in a different direction, all of a sudden you're like, shit, yeah, that's that's so good, that's mm-hmm. so good. Um, yeah, I really I really love doing that. So will we hear the the soul singer from the covers band on the uh, the album next year? Is that the plan? You might do, yeah. You actually <laughs> might do. Brilliant. Um, yeah, yeah, ge- genuinely might do. Yeah, and I'll have my dad to thank for that. He will not let me live that down. If that happens, he's like, oh yeah, I made that happen, didn't I? He will not, he will dine, on, dine out on that for months to come. Yeah, he'd be like, oh yeah, I knew I knew he was good. I knew it, see, these ears never lie. That's what he'll say. <laughs> <laughs> so, and is it next year we can get, so, yeah, we're we're going to get the album? Is that is that the plan? Yeah, the plan? so the, yeah, the plan is, yeah, the plan is to kind of, obviously Wide Open's just been released, so we're going to give it, the rest of this year now will be, you know, I won't put anything out. I'll just keep working on the tracks because December's a funny month to release music because Christmas and everything. Mm. January, again, is a fairly funny month. We we might put another track out at the end of January, um, but there's going to be a track every month now until the album, mm. which I anticipate will probably drop around sort of end of April, uh, end of May next year. And then there'll be a tour, um, some festivals and then UK tour and then an American tour. He says, <laughs> crossing his fingers. Yeah, if I can put a band together yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and create the tracks <laughs> without, you know, without them falling flat and sounding thin. I look forward to hearing it, Adam. Thanks a lot for, for speaking to me. Really appreciate it. Pleasure, man. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Um, if you want to get in touch about anything you've heard on the podcast or you want to just talk to me about anything or let me know any suggestions about people or anyone you anything you think I should know, please do. Uh, I'd love to hear from you. I'm on creativeforcespod at gmail.com. Uh, that's creativeforcespod at gmail.com. You can also find the podcast on Twitter. You can get in touch that way, creativeforcesp on Twitter. Or you can just message me directly on Twitter, Guy Kilty. That's G-U-Y-K-I-L-T-Y uh, on Twitter. So you can find me there. Please give us a follow. Uh, also give us a rating or a you know um, review in your podcast app. That would be really appreciated. It really helps for other people to be able to find it then. Um, anything you can do to support the podcast if you enjoy it would be very much appreciated and as I say I'd love to hear from you so please do get in touch Um, thanks for listening see you again soon